Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On November 3rd, Professor Jennifer Windsor sat down with Elizabeth Knox at an alumni event to talk about Elizabeth's work and her latest novel, The Absolute Book. Elizabeth will be awarded an honorary doctorate of literature by the university in the December 2020 graduation. Tanako to itene po nami mahana kia koto katoa, to huti mai ki tato hui fakanui. Tene to mihi a te heringawaka kia koto, a kanui te honore kitami kia koto, no mai, no mai. A very warm welcome to everyone here. Thank you so much for joining us this evening for what I think is going to be a very special event. My name is Jennifer Windsor. I'm Pro Vice Chancellor of Humanities, Social Sciences and Education here at Victoria University of Wellington. So let me formally introduce Elizabeth Knox. She's a companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit. She's one of Aotearoa's most acclaimed and successful and impactful writers. She's achieved both national and international acclaim to what I think are really vivid and compelling and powerfully imagined novels for adults and for young readers. She's the author of 13 novels, of three novellas, and an essay collection. Now, I think many people know that she's received um, a series of literary awards and uh, acclaim for many of her works, and possibly uh, most awards for what is to date, perhaps, her most well-known book, which is The Vintner's Luck. Now, Elizabeth graduated with a Bachelor of Arts from our university in 1987. We're very lucky that she maintains strong teaching relationships with the International Institute of Modern Letters, and she's clearly a part of the broader writing and publishing community. I will say that every time I've had the opportunity to meet Elizabeth, she is deeply thoughtful fully engaged and one of the most gracious people I know. So I think this is going to be a bit of a treat tonight. She will be awarded an honorary doctorate by the University Doctorate of Literature um, in December. So please help me welcome Elizabeth Knox. Thank you, Jennifer. So it really is a pleasure to welcome you here tonight. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start the conversation off with some more general questions about Elizabeth's work and her processes. Um, we'll then uh, talk a little bit about her new book, The Absolute Book, which is published by Victoria University Press. And then we're going to open it up for audience questions. So get your questions ready um, because we have Elizabeth with us. I'm interactive. So, yeah, <laughs> ask me questions. So we'll make this as much of a conversation as we can. So I will start us off, though, back in the day. So I want to start with the reputation that you've built as a writer. And so I'd like to start over 20 years ago when you wrote your fourth novel, The Vintner's Luck, and I see that as a really piercing love story about um, love and winemaking in 19th century France. 
it was a bestseller that brought you a great deal of acclaim from many quarters. Now, I'm aware, or I've read, that um, you were aware that you had a bestseller on your hands while you were writing The Vintner's Luck. So can you tell us about that? What made you think you were writing a bestseller? Oh, I, all right. Casting my mind back. Uh, the, the book before Vintner, Glamour in the Sea, was a book I was very proud of and... Um, it got very well reviewed, but it didn't get shortlisted. And uh, it kind of didn't appear in the world as much as it might have. And so I think getting to that point where you think, I thought, well, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that book. I think that book was really great, you know, and it, people reported being kept up till two in the morning by it and things like that. And uh, so I just had a moment of kind of like, oh, you know, bugger this. <laughs> I'm going to write something completely silly and something that's more like my imaginary games. Uh, I've been playing imaginary games with my sisters and friends for years and years and years, and the premises of those games were, were almost always fantastical. So I thought, well, I'm just going to write a book that is essentially a fantasy book, that was a decision I'd made without having any idea in mind, and then I had a dream when I had pneumonia. And in the dream, an angel came to me and stood under a weeping pe Mediterranean pepper tree in the shadows and told me the story of the great relationship of his life. And the story that the angel told me in the dream was the first quarter, basically the first quarter of... Um, the Vintner's Luck. So I just thought, well, I'll write that down. And I thought of it as a long tale, like one of Isaac Dinnison's long tales. I've always been a great um, fan of hers. And that's sort of something that has a quality of the fabulous in it, but also feels very earthy. So I was kind of aiming at that sort of fable and earthiness. And I finished the, the, bit, the dream bit, and I kind of got to the point where I thought, well, what can happen next? And then I thought, well, okay, so what would it be like if this angel, this, this man has met as a fallen angel and he doesn't know it? And then I continued the book from there, kind of as a plot. And there was just some point after I'd st started from that gear change where it, where it pushed ahead into being a novel rather than a long tale that I was reading it over, and um, it was just grabby, and it was very emotional and wholehearted and romantic and so forth, and I just got this, this sneaking suspicion I was writing a bestseller. I've had that sneaking suspicion after that, too. Out of the, out of the books that I've had that feeling about, I've been right, only been wrong once, <laughs> and that was Wake. I actually really thought that. <laughs> it, it did fine, yeah. So are there particular elements that you make that make you think it's going to be highly successful from a, uh, from a public perspective, or is it different every time? Um, I'm, on, I'm, 
I, y y people think that she's thinking about commercial things. I never think about commercial things. I do think about the readers, and, and sometimes you just happen on to a story that you're writing it, and it, and well, like the absolute book, has a certain amount that has to kind of set up its terms. So, you know, while it starts with um, a woman having taken revenge for the murder of her sister and the consequences of that, so, you know, it's got that pull of, of it, it doesn't kind of, um, it doesn't get the momentum it gets, finally gets, until about a you know, a quarter of the way in, and then it sort of starts starts its avalanche-like roll. And it's books like that that I recognise because I know they're going to end well, and I think it's ending well. You get There's two ways to really hit it with readers. You can begin well or you can end well. And Stephen King always begins well, and 90% of the time he doesn't end well. So, yeah, so I've just, yeah, I've got this, this, this feeling that I get where I feel that the thing's got a kind of a rushing avalanche-like quality to the story. I won't say plot. I mean, it is the plot, but it's your attachment to the characters and your sense of the sort of thematic purpose and it's just a whole lot of things will be going at once. And the book ends up like that only because I am at the point succeeding in entertaining myself as much as I want to because I'm always just trying to entertain myself. So if we, if we stick with sort of the outward perspective or the more commercial lens for a moment, the Vintner's Luck made you famous. Yeah, yep, famous. yeah, famous, right? <laughs> yeah. How did you feel about it, and did it affect your writing? Oh, well, I took it as permission to try the book I'd been wanting to write forever. So I had this idea of this, this vast and Byzantine and, and strange and deeply plotty and really peculiar book that I wanted to write, which was based on some stuff from the imaginary game. So I felt like I was both writing a novel and writing a history when I was writing it, and that was Black Oxen. And uh, a tight little book that was like a fable and was profoundly romantic was what people wanted from me next. <laughs> so that was a strange experience. But, but as an artistic decision, my, res my response was to take artistic permission. I, but I, I always think whenever I'm feeling liberated, that's what I do. I, I, and I can feel liberated by feeling annoyed and bloody-minded, or I can feel liberated by feeling loved and encouraged, you know? It's basically... There doesn't seem to be anything else in between. <laughs> it's like it's one or the other. I'm either really annoyed and going, right, I'll show them, or I'm, or I'm going, ah, oh, oh, that was such a great experience. Let me give you another wonderful gift, people. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So what I take away is that you might have done it anyway. Oh, yeah. I was looking for an excuse to write Black Oxen. Yeah. And then I promised myself I'd never write another deeply plotty, long, Byzantine, whatever book. And then I did, because that's what the absolute book is, except, of course, it takes its reader's hand and walks them through it all the way, because I'm a much more experienced writer now. So, yeah, you can, you can get that amount of plot, but not, not kind of have something that kind of um, its energy kind of bursts it apart um, it's centrifugal um, yeah, if I got that right it pulls in 
rather than explodes out, black oxen explodes out. So I'm really wanting to ask you questions about the absolute book, but I'm going to ask you another couple first before we get to the book. Yes, right? yes. let me get myself into trouble with my ideas about why my books work, because other people will probably have much better informed ideas than the writer. <laughs> no, 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 I think we're, we're lucky to have you with us. So let's stick in the 19th century for a moment, right? And I think you're aware um, that there's this initiative started in the UK called Reclaim Her Name, which is sort of republishing um, 19th century novels that were written by women under their female names now rather than the male pseudonyms that they used in the past. Um, so Middlemarch is a good example. Right. Um, so, what do you think about this initiative? Oh well, obviously, anything that reclaims books written by women. And I'm trying to remember the name of the underappreciated Victorian novelist who I've been reading recently, and it has left my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, yeah. So, no, um, anything that gets them out there. So, so they're going to publish um, Middle March under Marion Evans. That's correct. Oh, cool. Uh, I think it's the UK Women's Fiction Awards. Uh, and so as part of that initiative, they're republishing a whole host of those. So would you ever write under a male pseudonym? I don't know about a male pseudonym. I've often wanted to write under a pseudonym when I've been, you know, had this urge to reinvent myself when I felt that something hasn't worked as well as I hoped. And then I think, right. <laughs> I'm always thinking, right. Um, I'll publish something under a, under a different name. And Fergus, it hasn't happened because he always tells me that it's a betrayal of your contract with the reader, the readers that you already have. So, and then he, he adds to that, well, if you, if you were writing something really different than you usually write, but since everything I write is really different than what I usually write, that's a little bit... Difficult. It would have to be like a how-to book or something. Yeah. <laughs> On? <laughs> something about cats? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know anything about anything apart from writing books, really. Child-rearing. Ajax. <laughs> yeah. So even when I introduced you... I talked about um, you as a New Zealand writer, right? Uh, so when you hear that what, does that, what does that mean to you? Is that a thing or, or is it something that we're all putting on New Zealand writers? I think there's a, there's a sort of a pejorative New Zealand writer thing, which is New Zealand, New Zealand only, and then there's the New Zealand and you have to look like... Uh, look like a brochure with buzzy bees in it um <laughs> you know the brand the New Zealand branding thing and then there's a much bigger and more generous idea of the New Zealand writer which is a person who lives in New Zealand who writes a person who's been here for a while and has some connection to New Zealand and who writes and that's a New Zealand writer um even when I'm writing books that are set, set elsewhere, I've, I've always been a New Zealand writer because my English is New Zealand English. And I, I mean, I do have my own peculiar syntax, but I'd like to think that some of the peculiarities are 
New Zealand ones, and I, my American and English editors certainly asked me questions along those lines, like, is that a New Zealand expression? Or, um, you know, there's, there's certain grammatical formulations, when well, I'm not going to be able to think of one now, where we do it differently than the way it's usually done in America or England. Just quite, quite basic things that sound more natural to us. And I can't think of one, sorry. No, no, so I won't hold you to it. But will you change them then for your different um, I change. I change them if they are really determined that it's going to be unhelpful the way it is. But otherwise I say, no, um, I kind of like my New Zealand formulation and I keep it that way. And I also do, I subscribe to Margaret Mahi's idea where people used to say, oh, it's about... She said it best about um, the American version of Madigan's Fantasia, her, her novel. The American version, they said it had to be called Madigan's Quest, and she did change the name, but she was like, well, heavens forbid that we should teach a child a new word. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, yeah I, th I, th I think it's quite good for people in those highly parochial places like London and New York to think about English used differently around the world. And uh, we agree. I'm, um, being, I'm being sarcastic <laughs> about the parochial. <laughs> and um, not just being a New Zealand writer, what's the New Zealand writing community like? Oh, well, I'm lucky with the New Zealand writing community because I'm married to Fergus Barrowman, which means that I inherit all his friends and all his enemies. And since he has far more friends than enemies, this is a good thing. Um, and I, I love knowing as many writers as I know, and then all the people who are adjacent to writing, all the other arts, the musicians and the artists and the actors. And yeah, it's just, it's just, I'm just really lucky in my life that I feel like I'm a person who's just lived the last decades in the arts, in the middle of an arts community, the Wellington writing community and the Nabigga New Zealand arts community. Just, just, it's wonderful. So does it show up in your books? Well, the f I often have the feeling that there'll be kind of conglomerates of people I know I'm talking to or particular people that will come, in, will come into my mind, or so-and-so will particularly like this. But it's not, it's just a kind of a, a floating sensibility of knowing the people, that the people that you know are out there are made up also of people you know. Yeah. So a completely different question. Who's your favorite underappreciated author or writer, New Zealand or otherwise? Oh, okay, can I do a New Zealand one and a yes, foreign please. one? And neither of them, are, they are actually climbing now. And, and I, my favourite, not nearly as appreciated as she should be because she's a towering genius, is Pip Adam. Pip Adam is, she's an amazing writer here. And if you haven't read her latest book, please go find it. It's called Nothing to See, and it's an astonishing work. So that's Pip here, and... Um, there's an American horror writer called Victor Laval who actually does well and is very respected, but he's a, um, he's a literary genre writer. He writes, li he writes 
what I try to write, which is literature in genre. So he doesn't quite get the, the commercial pickup that he might, though he's doing fine and he ends up judging competitions and so forth because he's so well respected. And um, he's, he's a black writer too, so he's just got really interesting things to say using horror about being black and American. Um, but the thing that I love most about him, I love doing commercials for Victor Laval, is that he's got this running theme in all his books where he loves doing secret societies, and all his secret societies are different, and they're all absolutely plausible and absolutely batty at the same time. And it, you can just see the joy he's having in his latest secret society. Yeah, so read him. <laughs> Remind me of Agatha Christie and the Seven Dials, but we'll move on. Um, but it is, talking of secrets, do you hide any secrets in your books? Tons, yeah. There's, there's things that turn up over and over again in my books that are deeply autobiographical, and some of them will suddenly burst into huge visibility when I when I finally sign off on the little memoir I'm writing, which is a memoir of a sort of a three- or four-year period, but it kind of delves back into my childhood um, and explains a lot of things about me, really. Yeah, I kind of suddenly felt the pressure to explain myself to myself, so I'm doing that. Um, yeah, so there are there are things that anyone who's interested in the choices people make in my books and the, the kind of, when I do heroines, what kind of heroine it is, what's the defining thing about this person, what's the de what are the defining relationships for that person. Um, yeah, it's, it's all obvious, really. <laughs> it will be obvious. So I'm not going to ask you to share a secret unless you want to, but can you, can you pick up on what you said about um, it's about explaining yourself to yourself? Well, when I'm writing non-fiction, I am always trying to, you know, dig down into something true. It's usually a small thing because, you know, I can't... <laughs> I, I'm a short-distance runner with non-fiction and a long-distance runner with fiction. But this memoir, which I'm thinking of, in order to be able to trick myself into it, I have to think of it as a series of essays. But it's, it's cumulative, you know, it, kind of ends up being one story, really. Um, but other hidden things, I do hide the bad behaviour of people who have behaved badly in front of me and things too. So if you have some particular sort of egregious behaviour, sometimes it will be somebody I know in heavy disguise usually. Yeah. That's fun. Um, let's all be on our best behaviour. <laughs> no, people have to be pretty awful before I put them in here. I, I, yeah. <laughs> so these are things that um, uh, offend your sense of ethics or principles. Yes, yeah. Um, lack of generosity or narcissism or, you know, just... Um, treating people as instrumental. There's just a whole lot of things that I don't have any tolerance for and I'm getting better and better at characterising them. So look out. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to think I'm get, getting better at characterising them. Um, before we get to the absolute book, let me sneak in another question. 
and that's you've re referenced a couple of times now, um, developing as a writer or getting better and better at doing X. Can, can you just talk about that for a little bit? Because you have an expansive career as a writer, and so it sounds like you're saying you're different than from now? Oh, gosh, yes, absolutely. Um, and this is, this is what gives me confidence about teaching writing, and I only teach writing in as much as I'm teaching a collaborative novel writing class, but it's really a story doctoring class. And the thing that, the thing that I learned most usefully is how plastic a story is, how plastic what you've written is and how you can look at it and you can really take things apart and put them together differently if you need to. And I've learned to be patient and I've learned, well, the thing that I always have, but I've learned it to, to lean on it more and more as I've got more experienced is that I've got two-thirds of my mind are submerged. I call them the backroom boys they do most of the serious work when it comes to sort of um, metaphorical consistency and, and it's how a book feels and how the world that the book is representing feels to the reader. That, that kind of um, vibe or you know, sense of a world, sense of the consistency of a world... It isn't just about not having anachronisms. It's about a kind of feeling of truthiness to things. Um, and that's my subconscious doing that. I mean, I, I only notice what I'm doing in order to kind of manipulate it. But really, it's the submerged, clever self. But not just that. It's also the language. The language has a mind. Every language must have a mind because English certainly has a mind. It has a mind of its own, yeah. So you let it. That sounds very esoteric, but actually writing is esoteric. So I think we're going to come and revisit that when we talk about the absolute book. I don't think I'm going to be able to make that anymore. Um, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like when, you know, when mathematicians de de describe how something, how, how the... How the um, the the I'm going to use the wrong word the calculation the sum the the thing they're working on must be right because it's beautiful it's the same thing it's a sort of a a, a, a thing as if there is a, there's an ideal out there somewhere for the thing you're doing yeah and it's going to and if you're patient enough and if you work hard enough and you you open yourself enough and you're bugged enough by the things you bug that are bugging you and you have some gravity and some levity and and you go for broke then hopefully you're going to lure it in yeah that's lovely um so it is a nice segue to the absolute book which i would call a long run right um, so, and for those who've not uh, yet had the opportunity to read the book, let me just um, give you a minute, uh, uh, sort of around the book. Uh, so, it, without giving the story away, the the book is sent 
set mainly in the contemporary world, the contemporary day, uh, but it cuts across worlds and it cuts across times and it has human, other animal and demon characters. And um, when I first started reading the book, I thought, oh, it's following three main characters and it's following more than that. Uh, but it's got a literary scholar. It's got, it's got two point of view characters yes. and that one other main character, so... So yep. you tell us what they are rather than me. Well, I, well, I think of the absolute book as, as an intimate epic, and very early on I decided, all right, this is, this is an epic fantasy of a kind, but not one that's going to trail on from book to book. It'll just be one large book. And the epic nature was in what I was trying to do with, obviously I've, I've written down because I knew I would get my list wrong otherwise. I had a list of things about my favourite work of fantasy, which is Mikhail Bulgakov's Master and Margarita. And that book is kind of a satire on Stalinist um, Moscow. And just before, just before it gets bad, you know, the beginning of Stalin. And there's poets' unions and there's, um, you know, there's, people drinking up large and there's dissidents being put in asylum, artists dissidents in asylums, including the master who's written a novel that he's burned. And the master's novel is about Pontius Pilate and begins with Pontius Pilate's interview with Jesus Christ, Yeshua. Um, And uh, the beginning of the book these two, a poet and um, a man, meet this foreign professor. The foreign professor is actually the devil. And then the second chapter is the chapter of this man's book. And there's a giant cat in the book, and there's witches flying, and you know, it just, it just, it's just batty. It's completely batty and completely grand. And I wrote a list about what it was like, and I, this list was what I was trying to do with the absolute book. Funny, silly, awesome, grand, moving, suspenseful, intricate, devious, antic, and transcendent. And those were my watchwords. I was trying to do all those things in one book because I was trying to write something that gave me the same feeling as a reader, as a reading The Master and Margarita back when I was 16 and then over and over again over the years. So, yeah. Well, now we know yeah, one so, of the secrets so, of your books. Okay. The absolute book... It's got a scholarly hero, Taryn, who has written a book about burning libraries. But eight years before you get the, you know, the, the author with her first best-selling book, she was a enraged young woman whose sister was killed by a man who could only be tried for manslaughter and is only in prison for sort of five and a half years and she can't bear the idea of him coming back into the world when her sister can't. So she beguiles a rather frightening man who's completely enchanted with her, but is also enchanted with the idea of doing something extreme for her. He performs the murder, she lets him do it, and everything follows on from there. Everything that happens to her follows on from there. As it says in the, point, the, the scene where she decides to let him do it, um, she, you know, she can see all the trouble that she's calling upon herself, but she can't see that she is breaking all the locks on the doors to her soul, and that's what causes the problems. Because 
Her family owned a thing that demons are after, and a demon possesses her in order to find out what she knows. So she becomes very ill, and then, you know, and then the book proceeds from there, opening up and opening up because it's a book with lots of different competing interests in it. Um, there's all these beings looking for this one object called the fire starter because it survived many fires and libraries over the years, which is how Taryn comes to know about it. And also it was once in the possession of her family. So it's, it's, it's like an arcane thriller. It starts off like the Da Vinci Code or something, but instead of it being a nominal holy blood, you know, descended through generations, which the book says, which surely must be only a homeopathic holiness, <laughs> homeopathic holiness. Um, yeah, it really is a fantastical object. So to just continue telling a little bit about the story, tell us about either shift... Or Jacob. Jacob. Well, okay, so Jacob, and I'll tell you about what Jacob isn't first. I was determined to make my other point of view character, Jacob Berger, an MI5 operative. Because MI5 is in this book looking for cyber terrorists who are, in fact, demons. But we won't worry about that. Um, but anyway, I, I tried to make him MI5, and then I kept reading books about MI5. So I read... Um, Stella Remington, who used to work for MI5. She was the head of MI5. She writes thrillers now. I, wrote, I read factual stories about MI5 and MI6. And I suddenly realised that I didn't feel like I was getting any facts. Everything, whether it was fiction or fact, seemed like fiction. And then I decided that MI5 was possibly um, kind of fictional to itself. Like, their relationship to secrecy and so forth of, and, you know, spin and all those other things have made them sort of fictional. <laughs> so I thought, well, this is all very well and good and an interesting thing about these people, but I can't have a point of view character like this because, you know, that's just a bit spongy. So then I decided, well, she's committed a crime, Taryn. Maybe there's a cold case floating around and he can be a police detective. And then I brought in MI5 as, um, you know, kind of just working with them because they're interested in who Taryn's been talking to about her book, and Jacob is interested in, you know, putting enough pressure on her that she admits to causing the death of this man who murdered her sister. So, um, but of course, poor old Jacob, who thinks of himself as a hunter, you know, he's a, he's a police detective and he's hunting someone down. He, you know, he bites off far more than he can chew. <laughs> it's quite you have fun. to read the book. He's, he keeps struggling to maintain his dignity for a long time. He's actually a naturally very dignified character and very able, but you know, he's suddenly faced with fairyland and you know, talking ravens and. <laughs> so, so you've talked about two human characters. Mm -hmm. What about Shift? Well, right, Shift is Shift is the the book is about things being hidden, and uh, Shift is the second main character, but he's not a point of view character. And his nature is hidden from the, from the reader and from everybody in the book, more or less. He has a spell on him that hides him and that makes him inconsiderable and makes him hard to see. Um, he's the person in the book 
who knows what he's supposed to do throughout the whole book, he really doesn't think he can do it. And gradually, as the book goes on, he gets more of a sense that he can do what he's being asked to do. Because along with his hidden nature, there's a sort of a hidden prayer running through the book. There's someone is praying, and the prayer gets answered at the end of the book. So it's a great read, and it's a really, as you've said, epic narrative. And then uh, lots of reviewers have also talked about that the book is also about um, a big book about big questions, right? So people have said things like the book is about loss and penance and sisters. It's about how we think about the future. It's about who holds power and how and why they do that. Um, and so there's, there is one quote in the book where Taryn says, people love the idea that there are things which matter, which last and last and outlast. Banks, businesses and governments, of course we wish the world was like that. So your characters um, make some statements and have points of view. So that's what some reviewers have said about the book. What do you think about the book? Well, what I was trying to do with the book was to, apart from just really entertain people and make them happy, which, you know, I, I really did want to transport everybody who was reading it and make them happy. And I, but I also wanted to try and create a powerful wish in them. Um, so it's a wish fulfillment fantasy, and... At the end, the reader will either go, oh, that's so beautiful, oh, oh, that's that's wonderful, I feel so happy at that ending, or they'll go, but things aren't like that, they couldn't be like that, and even if they were like that, w would that be good? So it's it's it has different effects on different people, which I kind of mean it to, because, and, and the people who get very narrow-eyed, they do so because they think that I'm endorsing what happens, where I'm actually representing it rather than endorsing it. And it is a really lovely ending. But um, my intention is to make you think about what you're wishing. So people in it, the, the world is in the process, by the time you get to the end of the book, is in the process of being saved in as much as human beings are being made to sit down and shut up for several generations <laughs> for, for the sake of everything else in the world. And um, the people who say, well, that I, I wanted people to think, you know, if that's what you wish for, you wish for a quieter world of, you know, the degrowth, etc., if you, if you wish to achieve something like that, you don't need um, the she. You don't need fairies, because it's gods and fairies helping out, to ha make it happen, because we have governments. Governments, we elect them, and they can make decisions for the benefit of the world. Um, and our government did a really good job of protecting us with COVID. And they did things that people sort of got up in arms about and, you know, talked about infringed freedoms and carried on like a bunch of nitwit contrarians. Um, <laughs> but our governments can do more. They, they don't need to hold referendums, for instance. They can actually pass laws without asking us and then having us be subject to bombardments of misinformation and, and spin and nonsense so that you end up with the... With the 
Yeah, just say a cannabis Yeah. More unjust law. <laughs> yeah. You might already have answered this. You've. Um, <laughs> no, I wandered into cannabis. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. We could do that too. Um, you've, you've talked elsewhere about writing your way to happiness. Yes, I was. Through this book. Yes. Do you want to talk about that at all? When I started the book, um, I started it in the year after my mother had died, and we were very tired. My husband's brother had been killed in a, in a killed on purpose by somebody, and was who was tried for manslaughter and put away, and it was vehicular, not homicide, manslaughter, because of not being able to improve intent. So. That, that's the that's the um, the echo with what happens in the book, and my mother had motor neurone disease, and my older sister had very very bad mental health problems, and there was a lot. And then, mum died, my older sister was sorted out, things came you know stabilised you know, and our ne- um, nephews and niece were doing better, and it was all, and. Um, we went overseas quite a bit in that year, and we did a lot of walking. And the more we walked, the bigger the world seemed to get. And uh, it, it was partly that physical thing of walking. If anyone who's done a pilgrimage will understand this, um, it's, it's, it was it wasn't pilgrimage walking, but it, it, in effect, really was that time stretches out and space stretches out. And I got an I got an idea for a book in which there's a lot of walking and there's a lot of opening up. You know, there's gates to other worlds and people, the Sid in the book, the, the place with fairyland, is a place with a nomadic people um, who have food forests and who move around seasonally and there's very few of them. So there's a lot of lonely and walking under vast skies of stars and things. And I was, yeah, and that was making me happy. And when I came back and I started trying to write this kind of rhythmic walking sense of pilgrimage, sense of going places and the world being very large and full of possibility and full of change, yeah, that, I just started writing the book. And I didn't, I didn't have a, anywhere to put that mood until I just came up with the idea of structuring the beginning like a, like an arcane thriller, you know, the, where you have a scholarly hero looking for an arcane object and that takes you through libraries and museums and to other unexpected places. It's kind of a quest story. So you've helped me because one of the absorbing things about the book is that it, it, the world is opened up slowly, if you like, and so it, it doesn't feel like it's predetermined to a familiar location. Or and it keeps point. coming back. It keeps yeah. circling back. Um, it works like a detective story too, so it keeps circling back to the lives and concerns of the main characters. And it has a core of characters. It doesn't have a lot of characters in it. It has a core of people who you see over and over again, even when you think they've disappeared. Um, even when you think they've actually been bumped off, you know, if you go to purgatory, <laughs> things can, yes, <laughs> jump up and bite you again. 
So one more question about the book, and I think it is Pip Adam who's called you, um, what is it? She's called the absolute book a masterclass in world building, and I think you've expressed some of that. What did you edit out of the book? Oh, I don't know, really. Um, I, I had an idea that I was going to let it be. So, so Publishers Weekly called it a masterclass in genre blending. I wanted it to be an arcane thriller, most of all, above everything else, a, a literary fantasy, but an arcane thriller uh, with a bit of police procedural, a bit of spy thriller, um, and, uh, oh, what else is going on in there? Yeah, that yeah. I was just letting it be. Oh, and it's a recovery narrative because Taryn, it's a story of Taryn getting better. She does something dreadful. She fragments herself because she can. She's only functional at a certain level of her life, and she's a big person. She's got a, you know, she's got a a lot of life force, and she she's underused, and she finds out what use she can be to the world. And Jacob finds out what use he can be, and Shift, who knows what damn use he could be but doesn't have the right tools, finds the right tools. So it's, it's a recovery narrative, and whole societies recover along with it. People find ways to help each other. Really, um, people who are apparently in conflict find ways to help each other and um, make amends for things they've done to other people in the past. So it has this whole tendency, strong recovery narrative tendency, which was, yeah, it was, it was that. So it's not a self-help book, but it has a, <laughs> it has a kind of a self-helpiness to it. <laughs> Demons and self-help. So, <laughs> um, so I do want to open this up to the audience. So I have lots of questions, but let me just... Um, uh, ask you this one before we uh, ask others to give you their questions. If you could be one of your characters for a day, any book? Uh, no, that's absolutely easy. It would always be Zass Withers Wing, so I could fly. I mean, it's, <laughs> think about it. It's, it's actually, there's no question. I mean, and, and I wouldn't be having a conversation with someone or having romance or tasting wine. I'd just be up in the clouds, zooming around. Yeah. <laughs> Um, nice point to um, open it up. So we will open it up for questions for Elizabeth. So one of my absolute favourites of your book is Wake. Um, and it is. Hey. It's, it's one of my favourites. Yeah. Hey. yeah. Um, but so with Wake, you said it didn't have as much success as you expected it would, um, it being, and you expected it to be a bestseller. What were the elements of Wake that you thought would make it a bestseller and then... Like I just think it is. I just think it naturally is. And, you know, it did get published overseas and it did well and it went into two papers, you know, it had a mass market paperback in England. And I'm not done with it yet. I'm going to give it to my, Ameri my new American um, uh, agent, you know, when I get some energy <laughs> and say, look at this. I think the fact it wasn't shortlisted in New Zealand was a big thing. And, yeah... And I think it wasn't shortlisted because it was horror. I think someone just sort of decided to be a snooty beggar about it, really, and go, horror! Um, but, but it was the very deeply New Zealand book that various people have been castigating me about not having written. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's one of my most New Zealand books. And oh, I'm, yeah, I'm just really proud of it. But it's just timing with these things. And, hmm. and so with, in your creative writing classes, you talk about how um, you... Uh-oh, she's going like to hold me to something I said. Yes. <laughs> well, you did it with us as well. It's when you listed out certain elements that you wanted to have in a book. Um, what were those kind of elements in Wake that you wanted to see? Well, Wake I wrote during all the bad years. So Wake is, Wake is strongly a book about trying under... I'm using horror because, as I have said elsewhere, and other people say... Horror is one of the great moral genres because in horror, it matters what people do, you know, whether they live or die. And in horror, people are always trying to look after other people. And Wake is a book where people are trying to look after each other and coming to the limit of their ability to do so, um, which is the tragedy in it. And, um, yeah, and that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to, trying to explore that because that was what I was thinking about. That was what my life consisted of, trying to look after people and then feeling like you failed half the time. Because if you do try to look after people and things are hard, you are going to feel like you've failed. It's inevitable. Um, about the absolute book, uh, when you said truthiness and how you built the world, you had lots of little kind of fables or stories kind of scattered through that, rather than having kind of descriptive things to make the world seem more real, the little backstories that were woven through actually made it sound like it had more of a history? Or Well, I, I was playing with myths because, you know, and, and myths I really loved and, and um, fairy tale mythical beings. Uh, and I always came up with the stories exactly at the point that whoever it is starts telling them. So when the the early American printer who's in Fairyland starts telling how I met Shift, because they're all, basically they're all almost all of them are how I met Shift stories, because those people have remembered the stories for him because he keeps forgetting everything. Um, my favourite of all is the Ravens. I, I, I was I was trying to cue my son to ask about the ravens, but you've given me the cue. And I started writing about the ravens and the mummy as well scene when, when Shift, as a boy, goes to the well because he wants enough wisdom to be able to choose who should be the king of Britain. It's, it's about the, it's the 5th century um, AD at this point, and he's, he's 14 and he finds, and because he's godly, he finds his way to the well. And Mimir, the Norn, isn't there, but Odin is there with the ravens. And the ravens tell their story. And they tell their story twice in the book. And the raven was once one raven. So the, the raven was Noah's raven that was sent out from the rail of the ark and found no land. And, you know, flew around in the hopelessness of no land and no answer. And it was a natural bird, but after this kind of, you know, being part of this great moment and God being present became a kind of a godlike being. And for some reason, Noah's raven was at Mamiya's well when Odin came to the well asking for wisdom. And the well took his eye. 
And in my story, the raven eats, Noah's raven eats Odin's eye and turns into two ravens and then becomes the demigods, Hugin and Moonen, who in my book are sisters, not brothers. And um, I was particularly pleased with this. I was particularly pleased by just kind of tying this sort of energy from one story with a raven in it into, it into the energy of another story with a raven in it. And the fact they're so proud of their own story, you know, that they were a, a one being that became two beings and so on. Yeah. It's, yeah, it was just fun. So that's an example. I, I, I usually just take something and kind of bend it just to see what else is in it, what I can do with it. A final question from anyone. Thank you. I had a glimpse at your book, Absolute Box, and uh, it's fascinating. What I wanted to ask is, what is your position with faith, seeing that you've used quite a interactive from all, all levels What's your position on faith? Uh, well, I was raised as an atheist. My father was a, was a Catholic and had been an altar boy and had been abused by a priest. And so you can imagine what he was like in relation to Catholicism. So he was a proselytizing atheist. But he was also a man who used to come up with things like this. I don't believe in ghosts, so I wish they'd leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, I, yeah, so I'm a person who sometimes has experiences of God, which is, a, I do talk about this. I have talked about this in public before. My God that I have experiences of is a great anodyne, wild, mm, joyful, wild spirit that is just comes and goes and is there sometimes and not there other times. How that fits in with a religion, I don't know. But I do know I believe in that God, whatever that God is. And I think it's the same God that other people encounter. I, I just think that, you know, I think religions are, react, are a response to this unseen world and that's kind of crazy I also get migraines so it might just be my brain that's my default position I, I, yeah that's my out but but um I don't have to have faith or anything because I just have these memories of these experiences and I really live and hope that I'll have some more experiences because they're absolutely wonderful they're wonderful life-changing things I will ask one final question. We've asked you lots of questions. Anything you're bursting to tell us that you haven't that we haven't asked about? Um, oh, well, I've, I've, there's an anthology of New Zealand science fiction and fantasy coming out called Monsters in the Garden. I think it's out next week, and it is a book that had an occasion that it lost because of COVID. So. I'm very pleased with it, but I'm not quite sure what it is anymore. <laughs> and it's edited by myself and David Larson, and it's got a big retrospective component and then news stories from other people who we consider to be committers of non-realism in New Zealand literature. Um, so, so literary non-realism. So, you know, it's got a new thing by Pat Grace and, um, you know, Pip Adam and... Uh, Daniel McLaughlin and um, all, all sorts of witty Himara and you know just just lots of people yeah 
and yeah, I'm very pleased with it. Uh, Elizabeth, I think you've been really generous and I've learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you enormously, Elizabeth. Thank you, Jennifer. It's really been appreciated. Kia ora rauatu, nami nui. Please join me in thanking Elizabeth Knox. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stephen Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.